enjoy destroying lives. It turns me on. And welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara, and yes, here we are again. It's January 2002, fast approaching our 10-year anniversary. The balloons and streamers have been taken down, but it's time for yet another year. Oh boy, and who else would I rather have in the trenches with me as we begin? Our ninth year, 10th year, I'm never sure how these things work. Anyway, he's definitely Chris Lacey. I'm okay with that. Hello, Chris. How are we doing? Wonderful. It's Sunday, I've got beer, it's all good. Good lad. I'm still shaking out the cobwebs a bit here in 2002. It's been quite a wild start, but maybe maybe Dan Welling can instill a little bit of calm into proceedings. Dan, how are we today? Very well. Happy New Year to you wonderful people. Uh, Eric Landstrom is not on the call today, so I'm sure we're going to have lovely, good, positive discussion and agreements all around. There is at least one Specifically about one person. <laughs> well, I may be doing Eric's yeoman's work for him on that person, Dan, just to forewarn you, but we'll see when we get there. I got ambushed at our end of year award show and I thought Rory is always normally in my positive you know agreement of of certain wrestlers he'll back me up on certain people no clearly not hold that thought as well say on that one Dan so uh, no news portion for you today ladies and gents which we would normally have at the start of our show uh very very quiet behind the scenes at WWF Towers apart from news that broke right at the very end of this month which is why we're recording a couple of days later than we planned but we wanted to bring it to you we'll discuss that at the end of the show where it becomes relevant and no I'm not just saying that so I end up forgetting about it in two hours time we will talk about that news but for now just before we get stuck into January 02 proper just a little bit of fun and games to kick off the year you know they say January is the most depressing month well let's turn those frowns upside down shall we so a couple of weeks ago I finally received my copy of the latest edition well here in the UK anyway of uh, the PWI magazine which of course lists the PWI 500 for two 2001. Gentlemen, without resorting to your own copies or any other study aids, shall we play a little game? I'll take <laughs> that as a yes. I so, see where this may be going. For my own personal amusement, I have in front of me the top 20 of the PWI for 2001. Just throw as many names at me as you can and wish, and I'll tell you if they're there or Boston. not. Yep, number two. He's not for, for fuck's sake. <laughs> You just got to get them. There's no, no extra points for getting well, positions on I this was, game. I was worried that we were originally he wasn't even going to be number one, but yeah, there we go. Austin's number two. RVD. RVD. He says consulting the list. Oh, he's not there. But remember, later it is just a kayfabe list. In fact, no, I don't think that's going to placate you at all. Right, I'm going home. Fuck it. <laughs> I really should have thought about it, this one. Angle. Angle is number one. Taker. Undertaker is regretfully number 11. Booker T. Booker T, number 5. The Rock. The Rock, number 14. The greatest universal champion of all time, undisputed champion, Chris Jericho. Well, Chris Jericho is at number 9. Jeff Jarrett. Number, number 24. Kane. Kane, number 16. Chris Benoit. Number three. Shane McMahon. 
Thankfully not. <laughs> test, I don't know if you got laces there. No test. Edge. Edge number 20. Christian. Nope. Jeff Hardy. Uh, Jeff Hardy is here, yeah, 17. Matt Hardy. Not in the upper echelons, nope. Bubba Ray Dudley. No, and I thought he might be. Devon Dudley. <laughs> nope. Let's, 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 have, let's have a few more. I can, I can sense the listeners hanging on a bit here. Uh, you do it very well, actually. You've got DDP? The entire DDP is there, number 19. Kayfabe wow. Wiss. <laughs> um, big Show. No. The Great Moolah. Yes, number four. Oh, Japan, yeah, there isn't other countries. Oh, yes, there, 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 there are. Yeah. It's, it's not just Ken's in Billy Kibashi. Johnson's world that Japan exists. Uh, not Kabashi, no, but he would have been one of my guesses. Zawa. Uh, yes, number eight. The guy that was Sakushi. Oh, Shinji. No, Hakushi. <laughs> cool, no. <laughs> no. Ultimo Dragon. No, always a good go to. Jushin Pundalega. No. God. That's me out of Japanese, guys. All right. <laughs> I'll, g- I'll give you the entire top 25. Oh, li- li- well, Liger's there at 25, so I'll give you the top 25. So Liger at 25, Jarrett at 24, Tanaka at 23, Matt Hardy at 22, so I'm going to give you that anyway. Uh, Dr. Wagner Jr. at 21, uh, Edge at 20, DDP at 19, Kawada at 18, Jeff Hardy 17, Kane 16, Alhijo Del Santo at 15. The Rock at 14, Lance Storm at 13. Wow. See, deservedly so, but I just would never have thought that, you know, the general masses would see the greatness in Lance. Once again, I've got to say it, kayfabe list. Tenru at 12, fucking hell, he's still going. See also Undertaker at 11. Rhino at number 10. That ECW title must count for something on the points here, I reckon. Jericho at nine, Misawa at eight, Scott Steiner at number seven. Oh, yeah. Got Triple that. H at six, Booker T at five, Muta at four, Benoit at three, Austin at two, and Angle at number one. Yeah, that was something, wasn't it? Aren't <laughs> you glad I sprang that on you? We're both equally outraged at Austin and RVD's placements. Where was RVD? I can't actually even see him in my copy of the list. I'm <laughs> spinning through here. There we go. He's at number 59. Oh, for goodness sake. Never look at this fucking publication ever. Fuck them. Fuck <laughs> Don't them. call them the Abdomags. Don't listen, Bill. Don't listen to him. Uh, between Masato Tanaka at 58 and Chuck Palumbo at 60. Oh, fuck. <laughs> right <laughs> off. <laughs> you made me oh, watch a show that's put me in a shit mood. Now you bring this shit on. Fuck that. Oh, dear. After all that, I think I'd better just play our first sound clip, don't you?
He's got to feel everything that these fans are feeling for him right now. What an emotional moment. Just in case you've forgotten, let me tell you just to know who the hell I am. <laughs> I don't think they've forgotten. I am the game. And you can bet your ass I'm back. And I am the guy that tonight officially enters the Royal Rumble. So, yes, there you go. It was the return of PWI number six himself, Triple H, on January the 7th, 2002. A date we made great play of in our December show because the WWF made great play of it themselves in their December shows and their first one in January. But so it came to pass in Madison Square Garden that he showed up. Now, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that I was expecting his return, falling somewhere between Lazarus and the investiture of Prince Charles. But we didn't quite get that. So really, I was readying myself for the second coming. And really, what we just got was second coming. OK, you know, it's not that bad an album, but they had five years to work on it. OK, yeah, Love Spreads is fine. Ten Story Love Song is great. Tightrope's all right. Your Star Will Shine is quite nice. But it's also got Straight to the Man on there, which is the most boring song I've ever heard in my entire life. Literally, from bell to bell, nothing happens in that song. So, Dan... What did you make of Triple H's return to the WWF on MSG and his further appearances leading up until the Royal Rumble? Were you as happy to see him as I was? All joking aside, I know you personally have issues with the man, but objectively, that is the loudest ovation I've heard for any wrestler in the six years I've been like a proper following of a, of a fan of, mm-hmm. of oh, an yeah. arena that size. And in terms of how long it lasted as well like he would not like that was from the moment the opening guitar rift of motorhead hits to the point where he starts talking that volume was almost above a seven at every single point and hit 10 on multiple occasions so that's against austin that's against flair that's against the rock if you think about it in that instance this is one of the most you know joyous moments in wrestling you have to you have to say it the guy you compare that with how austin returned in 2000 that's the only thing i can really compare it to potentially in terms of a a true megastar returning after a a huge long injury layoff and i think this beat it uh when austin returned in november against uh, unforgiven and even when he returned a backlash when to actually help the rock beat triple h for the WWF title. Uh, this was a smart crowd, WWF's home turf. If there was any chance, the, the reaction would be mixed because of what this man can done uh, can do backstage and his association with the clerk and the two-man power trip beforehand, which was you know pretty much widely regarded and 
you know, as, as a pretty much of a flop and a disappointment. This was the venue to, for it to happen, and it didn't. If anything, it was probably bigger than what I thought it was going to be. They treated him as being on the level of an A-lister, like a Rock, Hogan and Austin. So when we say that Vince McMahon in the past always listens to his MSG audience as a way of judging how over an act is, what more can they do for this guy? I know they heavily promoted it. I know that they hyped up his return. I know that they're bringing, you know, doing the Shawn Michaels in 96, 97, where they're making him out to be this, you know, angel amongst us all. But the the fans are cheering for him. They are going to push this man to the moon for the rest of the year because of this reaction. I understand why people are reluctant to fully get behind him because of all the issues that we've talked about in the last two years but the facts are his body of work was so good for those 18 months since he won the title against the big show until he got injured that he has not he's, he's got a right to be cheered you know he, he is he has you know been awarded a top babyface run because of his work rate and because of his body of work and I think the fans were ready to cheer for him in late 2000 when he was feuding with Angle and a little bit of Chris Benoit, but they decided to make him the mastermind of the of the um, Austin car angle. Now that there's nothing stopping him, and I think that that reaction he got, that absolutely bone you know bone chilling <laughs> pop for some people, I think it's warranted him a WWF title main event shot at WrestleMania, and I think it does and him being classed as an A-level babyface for the foreseeable future. Because, like, if we're moaning about how, oh, the MSG crowd is what the true WWF audience wants, and if you if they cheer for someone, they should push him. Good God, they should push Triple H right now because the MSG crowd went nuts for him. So much I'd like to disagree with, but very little I can disagree with. Lacey, while I try to formulate some sort of argument, you're up. So, as as a you know, there's a age-old phrase, the road warrior pop, from you know the sort of pop that the LOD slash road warriors used to get in the 80s, and this was that level of a pop for trips coming back out. Did a little bit of diminishing returns through the month. So so, um, but yeah, it's one of those of you knew it was going to happen. He was getting all that fucking YouTube bullshit video packages rolled up to come in, and if I ever have to hear fucking YouTube again, I will be a happy man if I never have to. Well, especially for us, Lacey, because since the Premiership started on ITV back in August last year, we've had to endure it. About 15 times on a Saturday afternoon, anyway. Well, now yeah. a Saturday night, of course, because Scylla won the day. But yeah, I'm not, it's I like just, to being on 7 p.m. on a Saturday. Anyway, carry on. It's just that sort of thing of like, I could, I could see it was going to happen. I knew he was going to get this massive, massive pop, and it just when he came out, he didn't really do a great deal. You know, nothing that he said was you know world changer or anything like that. It was just a generic. Promo. It's been sort of pretty generic promos up until the Rumble. So you know, yes, it's great we've got Trips back, and clearly he somehow left 
being a, a massive heel and a cunt and has come back as a massive face just for the fact he got injured. But yeah, it, it's one of those who you sort of knew it was going to happen. I was I surprised by the volume, yes, but yeah, it, for all the build up, he didn't really say a great deal that was you know world changing. I don't think he needed to though. Like, you don't want to. You don't want to be like, okay, that's Triple H's return down. We've got his. Is that this is what his storylines are going to be for the next three months? You know, we don't. You, you know, you don't want to. If you, if the crowd are happy to accept, you know, C level substance and just want to see the man back, you don't need to give them A level substance because they'll probably be burned out a little bit. True. I suppose you're right. You know, if you give them the world to start with, then they, they're always going to expect more. I think it was all the better for the fact that he didn't really have anything to say. He got out, what, four lines before Angle interfered and announced his own candidacy in the Rumble when they had a little ruck. I think if there had been any more than that and we had got a 20-minute valedictory Triple H babyface promo, then we would have had some problems. The pop itself did all the talking for us, and there is no God knows I've tried. I've tried to put tried to put this together over the last few weeks, but I cannot do it. There's no arguing with a pop like that. And you can say, yes, well, they've teased it for weeks and they've orchestrated it and made sure it's at MSG, put it at their own mecca, all of that. And there's probably a sliver of truth to that, but I'm not gonna take that away from it at all. I I I pointing i am not going to do this that pop is without a doubt one of the loudest most sustained that we have had in the eight and a half years we've been doing this and i do believe it was genuine yes the wwf have milked it with all those fucking beautiful day videos of course they have and the fact we got shots of his surgery the very day after it happened if you go back and listen to our may shows i had my issues with that at the time i thought well just let the man fucking recover first okay but it's been in people's minds it's been pushed as it would be, we, know, we all know who he is, we all know what his connections are. But even if that did contribute to the size of the pop he eventually got when he emerged, I don't think that matters at all. I do think it was entirely meant by the MSG crowd. Basically, if you've got MSG on your side, you're doing pretty well. And there probably was a bit of a long service element to that as well. And congratulations from the MSG fans, who, as Dan says, they know their stuff for his previous 18 months of impeccable heel work. And I thought it was great. It was all it needed to be to the point where when he did cut slightly lengthier promos and indeed got in the ring before the Rumble, I think things there were a little bit less successful. I'm okay with him wanting to wrestle before the Rumble because he obviously wanted to test out his injury. I'm okay with that. And he's had a few house show matches as well. But it did take a little bit of the luster away. I do think think if they could have held off his TV in-ring appearance to the Rumble, it would have made the story tie together a bit, a bit clearer. But let's face it, the pop was the pop was the pop. And they had to bring him in as a face. And I detected a little bit of reservation from you on that score, Lacey. But there's no way they weren't going to bring him in as a baby face after what he has been through. That, With that's some... true. But the thing is, it, I know there's a general sort of idea that wrestling fans have a goldfish level memory (laughs) but it was only what 
seven months ago, eight months ago, and he was a grade A cunt. Oh yeah, he wasn't just a heel, he was the heel. He was malevolent, he was sadistic, he was a right right raw bastard. <laughs> you know, are you saying that if say so right same level of cunt that there would be Vince? Are we saying that if Vince had have gone and you know, had an injury and was off TV for six months and came back, he would then be revered as the second coming of the Messiah? No, he would still be booed out of the building because he's still a cunt. Well, Vince came back as a face six weeks after supposedly leaving the company forever in the summer autumn of 1999. He was babyface WWF champion six weeks later. Oh, <laughs> Sorry shit, to bring I that up again. About that. Oh, yeah, no, I, I clearly, you know. Don't you wish you had the Goldfish memory now? Yeah. <laughs> but no, they had to do it. But with somebody like Triple H and his character being as it is, you're always looking for the heel turn. And I think they would be very foolish indeed, however, to do that before WrestleMania. The story needs to be completed. And as we get to during our Rumble review, I don't think any of us doubt that that's what's going to happen in two months' time. Sorry to spoil the show, gents, because you'll be doing the Mania one, but that's what you're going to be getting. It's all that happens after that for Triple H, really, how long they can keep this going. Because... He's not a tremendous orator on the mic. You know, he's not going to hold people's attention. He's, he's not especially funny. He's not a raconteur. He does the serious stuff well enough as a face, but he's not grade A at it. As we've already discussed, he's grade A at something else. So I wonder if when he does, no, if when he does win the belt at WrestleMania, crowd interest and enjoyment might start to drop off and people might just want to see him go heel again. I think there's that. But for now, they just got to ride it while they can. And they're doing a fine enough job. I have my reservations, but they're getting the big stuff right. And I think there's no other place for us to go now than the Royal Rumble itself, is there, gents? So, Lacey, I shall throw to you. Uh, Dan, in fact, you have the results. It's all, I should say, everybody, just before we go on it, it's always a bit of a battle as to which of our guests calls up the results first, and it's only right they get to announce them. Dan beat Lacey by about a second, but that's all you need. <laughs> Dan, the results. Spike Dudley and Taz retained their WWF tag team titles, defeating the Dudley Boys. William Regal beat Edge to win the Intercontinental title. Trish Stratus defeated Jazz to retain her WWF women's title. Ric Flair defeated Vince McMahon in a no-holds-barred match. Chris Jericho retained his undisputed title against The Rock. And Triple H defeated Kurt, last eliminated Kurt Angle to win the 2002 Royal Rumble match. Wisely avoiding mentioning all the other combatants in the match. Lacey, your thoughts on the 2002 Royal Rumble? I will get back to a statement that I've made many a times. I prefer bad to boring. This was boring. So much so, I had to watch it three times because I fell asleep. Happy New Year, everybody. Dan, anything to add to that? Anything you can add to that? Why do I always end up disagreeing with the people I (laughs) I thought this was a perfectly good show. Um, As you would expect from the WWF sort of post late 2000 post Chris Kresge era not especially inspired booking but good in-ring action and nothing that was exceptional but again nothing bad and I don't subscribe to Lacey's way of thinking so nothing bad is good for me oh goodness me as ever I'm the Derek Smalls lukewarm water of the group 
I thought this was a show that existed. I thought it was a show that needed to do stuff. I think it was a show that did that stuff. I think now we should get started. But a great video package, no arguing there, gets us going. It's a beautifully put together array of sepia-tinged shots from Rumble history, which takes us right up to the present day, complete with a very clear suggestion as to who will win this year's incarnation. See? So we kick off from Atlanta, Georgia, and I wonder how long ago that venue was chosen for this event with a tag team title match. And it is the Dudleys looking to begin their 94th title reign, I think, against the current odd couple pairing of Spike and Taz. Am I the only person who thinks that Taz's music is something you can do the funky chicken to? More importantly, am I allowed to end sentences with prepositions because I present a podcast? Don't answer either of those questions. <laughs> Listen to this instead. Spike takes the early heat just for once, including that reverse 3D thing that really needs a name. Bubba removes Spike's neck brace from the attack in the parking lot last week and goes to town with a neck breaker. See, the clues are there if you want them. Thieve on in and he breaks out the Hennig neck snap. Hmm. The crowd, though, only want tables. Big suplex by Bubba, but Spike blocks another and gets off the acid drop, as I'm still calling it. He is able to make a tag, but the referee doesn't see it, and they're still doing that, and Spike gets flapjacked for his trouble. The D1 misses a diving headbutt, and the Dudleys then accidentally clothesline one another. This allows Taz to finally come in, and this time he is even allowed to throw some suplexes. A lovely Northern Lights gets two, and then another acid drop. Still calling it that. Stacy tries to distract in her own inimitable style, but Taz counters that in his very different but no less original fashion. Spike gets tossed out, but Taz can hook him the Taz mission on Devon, and the champs retain. Dan, to you first. To your original summation of the show, this match existed, and it did its job well, and got out in there in five minutes. I don't know what more I can say about this match. It's <laughs> the only odd part of it was Spike Dudley doing the acid drop in as a kind of heat reliever. I think that's the only way I can put it. But broader point, if we are transitioning away from the big three and we need new tag teams to replace them, I don't think Spike Dudley and Taz would be high on my list of wrestlers to do that with. I mean, it was nice of them to get a tag team title run with Taz picking up the win at MSG at New York. Good for him. He needs some good news in his WWF career, which has obviously been a massive disappointment for what we were hoping for at this point two years ago. But again, a five-minute opening tag tag title match involving the Dudleys, when you compare it to last year's Royal Rumble, where we had a really good, fun, you know, opening tag team match against Edge and Christian, this isn't a patch on that. It wasn't a patch on that match. And yeah, it was it was what it was. It was fine. Could have been a better opening match for sure. Lacey, your thoughts on the match and Spike Taz as tag team champions, which is still very hard to say. Yeah, it was all right. It's one of those. It, it was a pretty much a nothing match that could have quite easily been on Raw or SmackDown or even Heat and not been at a pay-per-view. Um, you know, I love the fact that my four of my ECW boys are opening up, you know, one of the big four pay-per-views. Taz finally actually getting a pay-per-view win for the first time in fucking ages. You know, it's... There were little bits of it that were good, but as I said, it, it was just all a bit blur. Um, 
Spike and Taz as a tag team, I I do occasionally like, you know, an odd pair, the odd couple tag team. Um, but usually they need to be a bit more of a difference between them. Spike just not liking his brothers and Taz just being a miserable bastard doth not a odd couple make. But the fact that Spike didn't go with ECW in the alliance, there's then no sort of callback to them both being ECW guys initially either. So, yeah, it's good to see Taz getting out to, you know, some TV time and having a belt, but the way that they have Spike just basically take a hiding all the time doesn't fill me with this as a long-term tag team. Yeah, I think they've put the cart before the horse here somewhat with this Spike Taz tag team, and they're almost getting them to learn on the job, and sort of we'll figure it out later sort of thing, and making them the champions almost to try to buy the creative team a little bit more time, and that stuff shows through all too clearly, really. It, I'm still not entirely sure why they are teaming, other than the very vague and general ECW link, but that's not really being especially played up. Now, if it wasn't for you on these programs, Lacey, I don't think anybody would know about it. There we go. You mentioned it within the first 30 seconds of your spiel there, Lacey. So I'd say that's actually a bit conservative for you. We need to need to get you a bit quicker off the blocks with the ECW references. But the match was fine. As Dan suggests, it was rather oddly structured. It was really just one big heat segment with a couple of hope spots, which just happened to be Spike's finishing move midway through. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but they got to where they wanted to go. And... I might be saying that a few more times again over the next hour or so, which harks back to my original blurb on what I thought about the Royal Rumble 2002 pay-per-view. And when I'm saying things like the Royal Rumble 2002 pay-per-view, just to fill time, you know I haven't got too much to say about the matches, so I think we better get to the second one, don't you? (laughs) We get clips of Edge's highly unconvincing snapping as a result of Regal's own dirty tricks, then an interview with Lillian, in which he demonstrates just how far he still has to go on the mic. Yes, he really did take quite the detour last year. It's very disappointing. More on that later, no doubt. But for now, let's get to his match. And it's a rematch from last month's Intercontinental title contest against Blackpool's finest. Nick Patrick does a very in-depth search for brass knuckles and in the tights, he manages to find some. Bell rings and edges off with a back body drop and some stomps and then immediately works on Regal's recently broken nose. But William is back with a hard knee to the face and there's a big Regal sucks chance. The guy just knows how to get them going an edge with a backslide for a two something akin to an enziguri by edge puts regal down but then a wild german suplex come t-bone by the challenger that one needs a name i'm sure somewhere in the world it does have one let me know billy a grinding forearm by regal and then a good old elbow to the mush who needs that fancy rubbish anyway he goes for a butterfly bomb but edge counters into a backdrop but regal does do it the second time around then scores the two off a siegfried and roy cover yeah thanks king that's not his worst crime today by the way They scrap on the apron and Edge lands a DDT right on the bloody thing, but right on William somehow not bloody nose. Edge covers under the ropes, okay, and then their heads collide back in the ring proper. They stay down for a count of eight, then trade a few fists. Edge with a knockdown and a heel kick and then a suplex for a near fall. A slightly more regulation German suplex, emphasis on the slightly, by Regal buys him some time, and then a swift takedown allows him to clamp on the Regal stretch. The champion's facial expression is just too much here. Bertie gets to the ropes before it can annoy me especially greatly. And then he counters into his own stretch. 
but back into the ropes we go. Swift roll-up scores a two, and then we ascend the buckles. Spinning a heel kick off the top, and now Regal goes into his tights. Edge with a spear, but Regal shoves Patrick into him, so now everybody is down. Regal now has something in his left hand, and it ends up right in Edge's face. The champ is down, and then Regal rolls into the cover. The ref comes to, and there's a slow three count. That's enough, though, to have ourselves a new intercontinental champion. Afterwards, Regal introduces us to the power of the punch. Lacey, chalk one up for our boy. It was great to see Regal win the the title, but for a 10-minute match, this seemed to go on for ages. Um, I don't know if it's Edge or what, but it just, to me, it just dragged. Um, Regal having the second pair of knucks, great bit of healiness, and, you know, the ref doing the comedy overly looking down at Regal's jump, trying to find the, the nuts in the trunks at the beginning. Um, but yeah, it just, just dragged for me. It was just really fucking slow. And this was the point when I was struggling to stay awake because obviously I was watching it live at silly o'clock in the morning. And yeah, this was, this was the first part where I was really struggling to stay away because he said this just drags well you probably wish now Lacey you didn't make the effort because until very late in the day it looked as though we weren't going to get the pay-per-view here live the channel 4 deal was run out yes but Sky hadn't really come in with anything yet either I think it was on box office it was announced like two days before so yep. that was worth your 14.99 wasn't it <laughs> that's why I always tape them at the same time just before I go to Dan on this one I'll, I'll ask you this question first Lacey is Edge in a bit of trouble now? Um, I I can see why last year they thought right, let's let's give it a go with him being singles. But I think it's at the moment a failed experiment. I think it was a little bit too soon for it. Um, I don't know what you do. I don't know whether you you ship him out to OVW like they did for Big Show and. Not that whole sort of whole, the whole learn a new hole, but maybe have some more time to work on being a singles guy just without the the national cameras on you. Because, yeah, I, other than when he has gimmick matches, so ladders and cages and stuff, he's just fucking bland. Your thoughts on the match, Dan, and where we go with Edge from here, if anywhere? And here comes the first point of disagreement. I thought this was really good. <laughs> I have always struggled with William Regal as a wrestler when he's not up against an elite worker. I think his style is too unique and for no fault of his own, it's very difficult for him to gel and have great matches or good ma- or very good matches with, with wrestlers who aren't Chris Benoit or um, you know Kurt Angle, for example. I thought this match was the best example I've seen so far of William Regal, you know, leading a match and getting something interesting out of it, in my opinion, anyway, like you compare his, this match to the match he had with Tajiri, which I know was only half as long, but, and this match actually with Chris Jericho at WrestleMania um, last year. And I thought this match was actually a, quite a bit better. And I, I liked it more than I thought I would. You've got nice tiger bomb. You've got, you know, as you mentioned, really interesting suplexes, and Edge, you know, I do agree with you, is a little bit 
still white meat baby face as a singles wrestler, but he's still, I, I, I don't, he's nowhere near OVW level. He's better than that. I mean, he was probably the best of the big six that we have gushed over on this podcast in the last two years in terms of his actual ability to hold down a singles match together. I mean, he's way ahead of the Hardy boys, for example, in that regard. And I think he's ahead of the Dudley boys as well, potentially. But, and I think that if you want to get Edge to a level of where you want him to be an upper mid-card babyface, the problem you've got, and I think this applies to heels as well, is that there's a huge log jam at the minute. You've got The Rock, Triple H, and Stone Cold Steve Austin all acting as top tier level baby faces and there's no room that you can't break into that echelon right now and even then you can make an argument that people like rvd are ahead of him so he has time you can't you know say oh it's a failed experiment and then off you go to obw to to learn some craft william regal is is like an archetypal wwf mid-card heel right now have him feud with him for a little bit longer whether and you can have a little bit of a you know a mid sort of season break now where regal could do something else or you can keep doing this but right now i think regal is really entertaining with this power of the punch gimmick you've got all the chicanery and shenanigans you can you can come up with with where the hell is he going to hide the brass knucks next you can get more juice out of this feud in my opinion i think these two have got chemistry together and you can give edge a a good knowledgeable wrestler to get tips out of um i i'm still quite high on edge and i think this match was good this match was definitely better than last month's contest which was clunky in too many places to the point where they seem to be outright not even cooperating with each other which was a red flag against both men i've got to put regal into that category as well this one they seem to have ironed out the kinks a little bit and this was probably the match they wanted to have finish aside back at the December pay-per-view. I still think they're probably one match behind where they want to be. And I do think there's a lot of potential here for them to really nail it. They didn't quite get there here, but they were much, much closer. And I'm hoping we get at least one more opportunity before they both move on to other things, because they probably need to do that. Regal being intercontinental champion, I think, is his level right now. He's had his semi-flirtations with the main event with his involvements with Mr. McMahon and I wish I hadn't said flirtations before I moved on to that next sentence so I'm not going to add on to it (laughs) we all know how that one ended up but leave him in the intercontinental level for now I'm okay with that edge is a huge question mark over him I feel like I say it every month and I go back and forth last month when I was on with with Pete and with Dell I had more positive things to say about where he was possibly going now I think he's regressed he's He's just trying a little bit too hard. His promos and he's gnashing his teeth and he's doing the whole big eye thing and he's talking about how dangerous he is. It's like when Jericho tried him again, tried to do similar a year or so ago. It just didn't work. It didn't fit. I do think there is a happy medium here between Edge's goofball heel persona from 2000 and a plucky baby face with an Edge. Oh, I really should have thought about that one. And I don't think he's got there yet. He has got the time. He can almost hide in plain sight for the next year or so. He's not going to be called upon for a good while. But I do think with his look, and he's still very popular backstage with the right people, that time will come. And he needs to be ready when he gets the tap on the shoulder. If it were to happen now, he would be shown up 
quite dramatically. So Dan, I think that there is, but the fact that there is a huge logjam at the top of a card is probably to his advantage at this point. He can use that time where up until at the very, very, very least SummerSlam, and I think it's probably long beyond that, you can just look at those six guys and you've got an array of main events there, probably until the end of the year, possibly all the way until WrestleMania 19, for crying out loud. So it's okay for now for Edge, and he can afford to make these mistakes. But if he makes too many of them, then it won't just be me throwing up the red flags. I mean, I certainly wouldn't relegate him to OVW or anything like that. I think he needs to be on television. He just needs to know who his audience is, because I don't think he knows that at this point himself, because I'm not sure he knows who himself is as a babyface. If you can get that ironed out, then we could be in business. But for the next 12 months, just concentrate on telling us what Edge babyface version really is, and we'll go from there. For now, though, we're going to go to the women's title match with our guest referee, Jacqueline, who now has an official license. Apparently, she is out first, followed by the challenger, who is Jazz, and the champion, Trish Stratus. We opened with clips from SmackDown last week where Jazz slammed an equipment case over Trish's hand. Even before she gets to the ring, Trish is selling said injury. And this pleases me. Sadly, all Lawler can say about it is purple puppies. Anyway, Jazz is in, and I mean in, right from the bell, including a very big splash, and I quote, right on the purple puppies. But who am I quoting there? Oh yes, I'm quoting Jim Ross. We're finished, aren't we? We're bloody finished. Oh God, nice sunset flip by Trish for two, but a stiff forearm quells that early mutiny. Jazz just brings it every time. Hard leg drop for a near fall. Then she wrenches the injured hand on the bottom rope and using every last second of her five count. Jackie takes exception to that, and so a shoving match ensues. But from there, Jazz can roll up Trish, and as such, our ref hesitates slightly before finally counting and getting to two. Trish cannot execute a DDT, thanks to her hand, but does hit the stratisfaction. Jazz counters that off the mat. That was beautiful. And a hard DDT of her own for two. They are making this match matter. They really are. The champ with a boot in the corner and then a bulldog for one and a two and a three. Trish retains both the belt and her selling of the injured hand. Something else I say every month, and I'm going to say again. Whilst her aptitude isn't quite there yet, Dan, her attitude definitely is. I think this is a prime example of how you can you know, teach a rookie on the job while making something quite entertaining to watch. I don't think you could get a, a, a much nicer start between you know trish who's green as green as grass but someone who clearly has the attitude of someone who can go a long way because she wants she really wants this and i think after the stuff that she had to endure at the start of the year last year i think she's you know that attitude is absolutely amazing and then jazz is jazz she's probably the best women's worker they have on the roster right now and i'm glad that she's been thrown straight into this and it makes I know it's upsetting for for Lacey that she lost to Trish, but for the for the greater good, I think Jazz teaching Trish how to to handle herself in the ring is a very good long term plan. But then I thought the match really started breaking down a bit with Jackie being a bit muddled, either by design, you know, playing off against Jazz, or just be being quite new to being a referee. And you then have Jazz kicking out of a strategy faction and then losing to a bulldog and it just felt like the wrong way round. yeah it, it it starts off really well and i had higher hopes for this and i i kind of hoped that they would get 10 minutes rather than five but 
I think the ending of it was a little bit weak and I, I ended the match a bit more on the downside than I think I sh- should have done given the start they had between two women who I think could be seasoned dance partners by the uh, time we talk about Royal Rumble 2003. See, I have to apologise on this one because this is where I did fall asleep first time I'm watching it. Oh. Um, I did go back to watch it again, so, you know, I did, you know, do the good the thing. Because Jazz was in it, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, the thing is, so there, Jazz is the perfect person for these greener girls to work with because she can pull her shit and do it well. Um, for me, I'm just happy that Jazz is getting a fucking spot on the team, on the roster, and such a spot that she's got a title match within you know, because obviously she came in for Survivor Series and then disappeared, comes back and gets straight into another title match, which I'm, I'm more than happy about. Dan's right, the, the ending was fucked. I mean, from the point where Jack, the, the Jackie shit start happens, that's where it sort of falls on its arse a bit. And yeah, the ending was the wrong way around. Kick out of the standard Bulldog, don't kick out of the satisfaction. Um, but... As anyone said, Trish is getting there, slowly, but getting there. Um, and Jazz is just great to have Jazz about. Yeah, the Jackie stuff overrode this a bit, and we didn't really need it. I, if you want Jacqueline to be a referee for a while, okay, but you don't have to whack us over the head with it. And everybody involved struggled to pick it back up from that rather needless spot where she started jaw jacking and shoving. We see enough of that anyway. We've seen enough of that in our title match, men's title match, for goodness sake. But we didn't need it here, and they struggled to get back on track after that. I wonder if Trish actually hit the satisfaction early because she missed her cue, and to the point where when she won with the Bulldog, the commentators actually called it a satisfaction when it clearly wasn't. But you know, these things happen, and she's going to make these mistakes, and I'm going to cut her some slack because her effort is exemplary. It doesn't have to be. She could definitely coast. She's already got her friends in the right places. Hopefully we don't see any more examples of how that manifested itself at the early part of last year, but there we go, moving on. So Trish could get by on just being Trish Stratus, but she wants to be Trish Stratus, the wrestler. She wants to add that epithet, and it's so refreshing that she's doing that. And just put her in with Jazz every month, as far as I'm concerned. And She's going to learn the fucking hard way with Jazz, make no mistake, because she was pulling nothing in this one. Those forearms, those leg drops, or you will feel those in the morning and probably the next week afterwards. And I think Trish says, you know what? Bring it on. That's how how else am I going to learn, as they say, you know, this isn't show and tell. But Jazz is so far removed from Vince McMahon's idea of a women's competitor been here for a couple of months already sometimes i almost think that's almost two months too long not for her i hope it's for much much longer as dan says all the way until next year and beyond but i'm hoping that vince mcmahon doesn't really know who jazz is at this point and i'm hoping it takes him a long long time to find out because when he does we might not be seeing too much of her but so let's just enjoy her while we can probably given the mistakes in this match it worked out for the best that it was only about five minutes long but much like with Edge and Regal, although on a different scale, of course, I think they're going to get another chance and I do think they'll get it right. And Trish is doing everything within her power and another 10% beyond that to get it right every time. And long may that continue, long may it be allowed to continue. 
To the match that has undoubtedly had the most build and attention, even more so than the Rumble itself, the street fight between Ric Flair and Vince McMahon. <laughs> Vinny's already immortal line, I like destroying lives, it turns me on, gets referenced twice in the video package, as does the fact that these men own 50% each of the company, which I must admit I'd all but forgotten leading up to this match, although by the end of the month I was very much reminded. More on that later. The match for now then. Rick's daughter Megan and son Reed are in the front row, but I'm sure that is just incidental. The two men lock up, and yes, I use their quotes. Then Vince gets the first knockdown and the bodybuilding pose. Oh, you know the one. Gritted teeth and all. And then from there, he puts on a standing side headlock. Very impressive maneuver on the part of Vince McMahon. He mocks the strut and gets the asshole chant from this capacity crowd. Then Flair with a takedown and those punches in the corner. Vince's own chops and a woo get swiftly met by the real deal. McMahon with a clothesline. Ish, and for some reason, we get the flare flop. Hmm. And they say flare just does the same thing in every match. However, he doesn't quite do the get whipped to the buckle and run along the apron spot. That really doesn't need a name. Outside, Vinny whacks him with a keep off sign, a succession of blows to the facial area. He then does the same with a handily positioned trash can, and flare is now wearing the crimson mask. Was that on your bingo card? If it wasn't, don't go to that social club again. Vince now, the southpaw, with some punches right in front of Flair's family and a scoop and a slam. VKM then grabs Megan's camera and takes a picture of himself. That needs a name. But that notwithstanding, he helpfully gets the bloody Flair in the shot as well. He then works the leg, and yes, the air quotes are back, and no, I am not even going to consider calling that an ankle arc. Vince now, perhaps sensing victory, wrenches Flair's leg around the ring post. Come on, ref, disqualify and get in there, do your job. Instead, though, he puts on the figure of four. He gets a couple of near falls until Vince manages to count, sorry, Flair manages to counter the hold, and somebody needs to win with that one day. But not today, though, as Vince scuttles away. He then uncovers the weapon du jour, which is a lead pipe. He used it on Flair in the garden earlier in the month. Why do I think Vince has only just discovered Cluedo? Or Clue, as he would know it. But Flair counters with a shot to the groinal area. Very clever maneuver on the part of Ric Flair. He then grabs, have you got it yet? He then grabs the monitor and slugs Vinny back right in the face. Seesaw match up back and forth. McMahon is now bleeding too. Somebody's getting fined. Back outside, Flair bites the wound, and now Megan Flair takes a photograph of the melee. Rumour and innuendo suggested we would see that photo on Raw the next day, and so it proved. I love her for that. Flair now with the pipe, and you know where that ends up. And now it's time to go to school. And in the figure of four, Vince taps with both hands. Flair is victorious in this hard-fought matchup, Lacey. I actually didn't mind this. Um... Because I know that Flair's not been active in nigh on a year, and even when he was last active in WCW in those ending days, he was in rough shape. And when Vince is in a match, you know exactly what it's going to be, and this is exactly what it was. You know, they they Flair did Flair shit as you'd expect. Vince did Vince shit as you expect him to do. And it was as brutal and as violent as this should be with the fact of how much these two are fucking hating each other at the moment. It worked. You know, I wasn't expecting, you know, a classic match or anything there. I knew what I was expecting and I got what I expected and enjoyed it. Dan, what have we got? I thought the first half of this match was just weird. Um, because you've got Vince doing chain wrestling, clean wrestling, overpowering Flair, Flair doing a Flair flop after 
just a couple of punches and it's as as you said it's just a bit weird for Ric Flair to be doing all of this so early on in the match for Vince McMahon then he goes and blades really early because he's Ric Flair he can't resist it it's just a, it's just an insane drug to him to blade after just getting hit with a with a sign so I just I the first half of this match was just bizarre to me and it did take me a while to get back into it but I feel like from the moment Flair starts chopping you know Vince's chest by the denounce table it basically kind of clicked into gear for me a little bit um and yeah and then you get Vince getting bitten by a bloody Ric Flair which just made me cringe it's just quite disgusting and so again that kind of took me out of the match again and and it was poetic for him to get you know the win with the pipe shot after all that Vince has done to him so again I'm going to disagree with Lacey I probably thought this was probably the weakest match of the show in terms of just how bizarre I found it yeah I very incongruent position I really enjoyed this but I don't think it worked I liked it in spite of itself because of the ridiculousness of Vince McMahon doing <laughs> chain wrestling, you know, those air quotes were well used, I can assure you. And Flair getting almost nothing for the first 12 minutes until he was the one using the extremely nefarious tactics with nary a wrestling hole to be found. Uh, I think, I'm going to be a bit charitable here, I think I understand what they were going for there, that Flair was rather rusty and it was Vince McMahon wrestler that was written on the docket when Flair noticed it at the end of December. But maybe I'm giving them a little bit too much credit there. They probably didn't just want Flair to go to school on McMahon for any longer than one minute as they did at the end. But I think they tied themselves in not slightly in doing so. And the match didn't really tell a story. As I said, I'd almost forgotten that this was between two people who owned the company. Yes, they corrected themselves towards the end of the month, and I don't like the journey they're taking, but the blood, though excessive, probably did help in that regard because it almost artificially suggested there was more to the story than they were letting on. So the fact that it was dropped in there gave the viewer the suggestion that this match was important, even though, even with all its build, it never really quite felt like that. This did feel like a stop on the road for Flair, even though it was his first WWF match for nine years. I know that sounds bizarre. It doesn't really hold together, but that's how it came across. And when Flair did sign in November, was he aware that his first match would be against Vince McMahon in a 15-minute bloodbath? And that, I think even this obsession for the business that he holds, Flair, he might have balked at that if he had known about it. But it was a lot of fun. I did like all the photo stuff. It was a match that was at the very least aware of its own ridiculousness, but I'm not sure a match with Ric Flair. His first match in the WWF for almost a decade is where you want to be placing that. It was probably fortunate in that regard that Vince McMahon was his opponent because he is a past master at this stuff. And they just about got away with it. This has to be a one and done because after 15 minutes of this, I pretty much was done. Speaking of which, here comes Stephanie McMahon interrupting an interview with Nick Patrick to put over her own husband in She Doth Protest Too Much fashion. Austin then comes into the shot upon mention of his name and then what's Stephanie out of it completely. Oh man, these chants. 
Look, they made perfect sense when the heel Austin was all but losing his mind and was desperately searching for some, any kind of clarity. I love them then. Now, though, it's just typical cool dadding, I'm afraid. This is the part where one of you says, what? You haven't done it? Great. Quickly, let's get to the next match. To our contest for the Undisputed World Championship. I've underestimated you. Chris Jericho versus The Rock. And yes, I felt Eric Landstrom wins, as I said that. Uh, this match has had all of three days build. And even that was spent with Jericho trying to tell us he is not a joke and that he does deserve to be champion. Well, if you feel that you've got to say it, let's see if he can answer the critics in ring anyway. He whispers a bit of trash talk to The Rock and then does the just bring it thing which is cute, but I preferred it when he did it three months ago. And I think The Rock did too, as he is straight in there with a Samoan drop and a quick two count. Big spear by The Rock and the people's fists, but he gets caught with a boot and a flying forearm. Jericho, though, misses a charge in the corner, and how, but counters with a stun gun, which JR calls a hot shot. Spinning heel kicks calls the champion a two count. He's the champ. Suplex by Jericho and the come on baby cover, which I will always let him have. He then undoes a buckle pad in a little bit of foreshadowing. For now, though, he tries the walls, but Rock kicks out of it. So Y2J settles for some straight white tans, played out to the symphony of a Rocky chant. Jericho goes up and hits a missile drop kick for a near fall only. In a very worrying sign, Jericho resorts to the rear chin lock. Oof, and not even his ask him, ask him can save that one. Still, they achieve their undoubted goal of eating up two of their 18 minutes before the Brumble is up before the arm drops for three. Chris tries another top rope move, but this time Rocky backs into the ropes to knock him down. Hard chops by the challenger, followed up by a great superplex. They kill another minute or so before Rocky gets two from his overhead throw belly to belly sort of thing. Not sure that needs a name. Jericho with a forearm and then two lion salts. But all they are good for, though, is the shocked kickout face. But now usual shoving match with Hebner in shoes. There you go. But Rock catches the champ off a drop kick and puts on a sharpshooter, not the sharpshooter. However, as I lose my place very quickly, Lance Storm and Christian come down to distract the official. They get the punishment they no doubt expected, then Jericho with a rock bottom. But the People's Champ is able to kick out. He is still down, though, so Y2J peoples the people's elbow. Oh, he teases it, and I really like that he just threw his own elbow pad down to the mat rather than into the crowd. However, Rock gets up and sends him over the top rope. Let's fill another couple of minutes by prepping some tables, shall we? That said, they do their best to allay my cynicism when Rock blocks a rock bottom on one table and reverses to one through the other. Stone me, did they ever crash through it. He rolls the champion in, but Jericho is able to get out before the count of three. No rock bottom in the ring, though, but it is a Wars of Jericho. The Rock manages to get to the ropes by the aid of a few press-ups. Yes, really. And then when Y2J tries it again, a very near fall is scored off an inside cradle. Rock goes for a forearm, but only succeeds in wiping out the official. Then Jericho nails Rock with a belt shot. Nick Patrick comes down to the ring, but Rock kicks out once more. A frustrated Jericho that gets DDT'd, but Patrick doesn't feel like counting that one today. Visual pin one for the Rock there. Rock bottom for Patrick and then spine buster for Jericho. Now we get the people's elbow, but no referee. Visual pin two for the Rock there. As he tries to revive Hebner, Jericho executes a low blow, then guides the Rock's head into Chekhov's turnbuckle from earlier. And then he places his feet on the ropes for the pin, from which he is able to get a three count and escape as the undisputed champion. However, is he just the undisputed champion in name only? Dan, coming from you, I suspect not. But what do you think? <laughs> Look, I, I will be the first to admit, this isn't looking good when throughout the month of January, he's had to use crooked refs, belt shots and other massive chicaneries to just beat people like mm -hmm. Rikishi. 
I'm not going to dispute that this is not a good look. And I, I fully imagine that he's going to lose his belt for WrestleMania season. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say that Chris Jericho is setting up to be a 12 long, a 12 month run as a Ric Flair-esque chicken shit heel just escaping of his belt. But I also want to say that these three have had, you know, these two, sorry, these two people have had three very good matches between them since No Mercy. And I honestly think this was one of my favourite match because Chris Jericho went into uber chicken shit heel and got the come on baby top pin. For me, <laughs> I realised that as much as I love technical wrestling, cruiserweight, high-flying, all that jazz that we love on this podcast. I also sometimes like to see overbooked chicken shit heels doing crazy underhanded tactics, which by, you know, all the logic throwing out the window of why is Nick Patrick ejecting Lance Storm and Christian and then coming back to be the crooked ref for Jericho? Why is there no disqualification when, you know, rock, rock bottoms in through a table? Throw all that out the window. I just want to see chicken shit heels take the piss out of beloved baby faces and escaping with the title after low blows, exposed turnbuckle face plants and feet on the ropes. I feel like that's my my blind spot in wrestling. And right now, Chris Jericho is doing all of that and more. And I really, really enjoyed that match because of it. So... If you want to come to me for objective analysis in this department, I don't think I can give it to you right now because right now Chris really? Jericho <laughs> is giving is just delivering what I want. And maybe that's why I loved Kurt Angle in 2000 so much as well, because right now chicken shit, chicken shit heels who can wrestle work for me and I can't dispute it. And I also think in the long run, we complain about how sloppy Chris Jericho is sometimes, you know, look at his matches and how many times he whiffs trying to do, you know, cat flary baby face stuff. Let him be a chicken shit heel because it means we don't have to worry about that problem. Listeners, I'm going to let you into a little bit of a secret. I've already booked our WrestleMania show and both Dan and Eric are going to be on it. <laughs> and so is Lacey. What have we got um, today, my man? It was all right. <laughs> it's a, it, I don't know whether it was just because when watching this, I'd, I'd woken up from my uh, mini slumber at that point. Um, but it it was one of those of it was all right, but it never really hooked me. I just you know Jericho was a as a old fashioned chicken shit heel. And sneaking a win and keeping the title. Yeah, I like that. You know, it's a throwback to the 80s and early 90s when that was the norm, um, especially sort of NWA and WCW days. Um, but I, I don't know if they're just trying too hard, but I don't think these two have really that good chemistry together. Um, yeah, it, it seems to be that. The Rock needs to do either a brawl type match, or he, if he's having a normal match, it needs to be to his style and the way that he always does. And when Jericho sort of brings in that other element of some of the high flying stuff and things like that, I don't know if it, if it just doesn't gel with what Rock's doing or what. I don't know, but I just 
feel these two have a little bit of chemistry missing. Obviously, going on with what we know later and who wins the Rumble and stuff, um, obviously we're going to probably still have this Jericho all the way through to Mania because um, I can't see them binning the title off at No Way Out. So I can imagine that would be a better match, especially if he is still healing himself the way that he is here uh, for Jericho. But yeah, I just, I just don't, I just don't know if it, what it is with these two, but I don't think they worked amazingly well together. And yeah, it was, it was all right. I've liked all of the matches these guys have had against each other. I've never quite taken that next step to loving them. And I think I know why. And I think you pretty much hit on it there, Lacey. It's neither guy knows quite what to do outside of their own status quo, really. So they just try to do their stuff against the other guy's stuff. I think at No Mercy that probably worked because the story going into that one was really strong and that helped carry them that extra percent they needed. Here, with the world title on the line, Jericho undisputed champion, I should say, I didn't really feel like that had they had that extra ballast and I could see... I could see the join a bit too much here. Like I said in my notes, at least five of this 18 minutes were them clearly just marking time. The remaining two thirds of the match were pretty good, but it didn't feel like a title match, nor did it feel like a, a special Chris Jericho versus The Rock match. They did their stuff. Heel Jericho and superstar dumb Rock, their stuff is still pretty good. Yes, Jericho has his problems. Rock sticks to what he knows, but that's still pretty good stuff. That that brings home the bacon. It certainly does for us on this podcast and for all of our listeners too, no doubt. So that's okay. I don't necessarily blame them for doing that. But I think on this occasion, the third or fourth high-profile match between them, that they didn't really try to go beyond that here. And is that a tacit admission that Jericho already knows he's on borrowed time? Is The Rock just happy to bump along for a while? Because I doubt he's going to be wearing the WWF belt for at least a few more months himself. So was that part of it? Maybe. Uh, I just want Jericho to drop the whole joke thing. And when he talks about being larger than life and he's putting that extra sizzle on his promos, he doesn't seem like a champion. He seems like... Get this, a deluded mid-carder who thinks he should be in a better position on the card than he is. Like the sort of character he played, oh, I don't know, WCW 1998. He's very good at it, but when I watch his promos, I don't think he'll champion. And that's something I just cannot look past. I admit it, I've tried, because I want this Jericho thing to work. And I do think that somebody nominating it for one of the worst booking decisions of 2001, a mere three weeks after he won the thing, was definitely an issue I couldn't look past. So because of the sorry, Eric, because of that, I'm trying my best to make this Jericho thing work. Because we said last month, it's going to end at WrestleMania at the very latest. Right now, I agree with Lacey. I don't think they're going to cut him off at no way out. I still wouldn't entirely shock me, but I don't think so. But... I really hope that when Jericho does lose the title next month or the month after, we don't just look at this as 
a transitional title run, which he didn't get himself further over with. His promos aren't, they're just not landing. I, I don't want you to be larger than life. I want you to be a fucking bastard. You know what I mean? I think in ring, he's actually got it and working like the chicken shit heel. I think he's got that now. I think because of that, he's able to overcome his limitations and I don't mind him winning as cheaply as he does. I'm okay with that. But yes, when he's facing somebody like Rikishi or dare I say it, Maven, and he's milliseconds away from losing and he's nefarious means to win. Oh boy, have we got issues there. And I think everybody deep down knows it. Worst of all, Jericho himself. But he's still the undisputed champion, and I'm not. We go to WWF New York, where we hear from star of far too many news bulletins on this podcast for somebody who hasn't wrestled in four years. It's Shawn Michaels. And you wonder why I didn't do a news bulletin this month. He gives some brief Rebel predictions, but remains tight-lipped as to his own future. He amusingly calls Ric Flair and Vince McMahon, as he calls him, the most influential men in his career. Oh, I'll bet. So then, to the Rumble matchup, the ninth we have covered in the lifetime of this podcast. Let's see where this one ends up ranking. Rikishi himself is number one, and the returning Goldust is number two. As with all the surprise entrants this year, the WWF announced his participation ahead of time. Other than Goldust trying a sunset flip, and I can think of at least two things wrong with that, there's not much to report until our third entrant emerges, and that is Boss Man, or as he is known by one member of this household, Fat George Michael. He does little other than cause Rikishi to do his 360 cell, and I suppose you could call that spinning the wheel. Huh? Huh? Fourth health is Bradshaw, who, who King calls big and bad, accurately. The crowd have already settled into pop for the entrance and not much else mode, so we wisely get a stink face spot for Boss Man by the turnbuckle, and that really is a different corner. A thrust kick and clothesline will do for Boss Man, who is now eliminated and will not be able to give it one more try. Well done, me. Accentuate the positive and hide the negative. It's boring Lance Storm at five. And yes, our commentators make sure to call that out. Everyone has resorted to doing the lazy lean. You know what I mean by that. And that's a bad sign as we're not even 10 minutes in at this point. Entrant number six is Al Snow from the Tough Enough show, who gets to watch Lance Storm get hit with a clothesline from hell and hear some We Want Head chants. Billy Gunn comes in at seven and immediately eats boot from Bradshaw. Storm and Snow have a fun little battle on the apron, which Al wins. And then, in a bit of a surprise, Billy manages to turf Bradshaw. I ain't crying. <laughs> okay, I am now, though, because Undertaker is out next. Oh, can't you just give me a few minutes? And yes, you can guess the rest. Goldust, Al, Billy, Rikishi, all gone and not even permitted to offer the merest of token resistance. Does he really need this? Matt Hardy tries his luck at nine, and Lita is here too. We find this out when Taker traps her in a goozle, and she then manages to find his own groinal area with a kick. That must have taken some doing. Yeah, I went there. Matt is given the kindness of staying in until the next entrance, who just happens to be Jeff Hardy. They spend weeks putting this match together, you know. They manage to keep Taker down, and then all the Team Extreme get to put the boots to him. Oh, get in there, everyone. I think they call this sort of thing a vicarious thrill. Twist of fate in a swanton? You heard me right. He then catches from a poetry in motion and summarily dispatches him out, does he do to Jeff, and then ends Matt Hardy with a last ride. Yeah, you heard me right. Number 11 is Tough Enough winner Maven, and it's the first time we've seen him this year, which tells its own story. And this could get ugly in a hurry. But Team Extreme aren't done yet, and they want to get as much back from Taker as possible. Yeah, don't get your hopes up, guys. They get wiped out again, and then... The Undertaker and Maven are 
are the only two legal men here. Right, so get the rest of the men out of the ring. Yeah. Oh, there, there, went, there went Jeff Hardy. Referee's making himself useful, trying to But anyway, what happens after this potentially star-making moment? Does Maven get two minutes to bask in the glow of his achievements? Does Undertaker nod his head and say, fair play, mate? Does Maven go on a tear through the rest of the Rumble? I'll tell you what happens. And with apologies to Matt Lucas as Gary Barlow in Rock Profile, Undertaker destroys him and ruins it and maims him and ruins it, eviscerates him and ruins it and kills him and ruins it. Career over, end of game! Macy, your thoughts on the first 11 in the world? Pre-Taker, fuck all happens. Taker comes in, clears house. You know, first real big name star in the, in the Rumble. Makes sense. We've, we've seen this many times before. Maven gets his moment. And as you say, then gets murdered. Literal murder as being put through a popcorn machine. <laughs> murdered. murdered. You know, Taker take looks like the mean, nasty bastard that he his character now is. Maven has his moment. Whether anything will come of this, fuck it, who knows? Because if they do a couple of matches after this for Maven, he isn't going to get his win. He's not going to get a redemption. He's just going to get a hiding. Yeah, it it was... It reminds me of, was it 93, when Giant Gonzalez comes down? And yes. we had that moment where, you know, Giant Gonzalez comes in, takes out the taker, and that was your big story moment for the Rumble itself. And I think, as we go on, it pretty much was the big, the big moment from the Rumble as such, that that was it. And... But I don't think it's... You're not going to get Maven versus Taker at WrestleMania. You wouldn't even get it at the next pay-per-view. It's going to literally be... It'll probably have him a couple of matches on SmackDown or Raw leading up to the next pay-per-view where he just murders him and who knows if was, you know, what happens to Maven and whether you know, he actually does get physically harmed. But yeah, pretty dull. Taker comes out, it livens up for a couple of minutes and... That's that. Oh boy, was that ever that. Dan? I completely agree with Lacey. First seven wrestlers are just boring. And as you mentioned, the, the surprise returns were not surprised at all. So it's just, yeah, there's Goldust, who was pretty shit for four years of his <laughs> WF run. And he's been, to go back to our original point of like, oh, just the absence makes your heart grow fonder and it's basically a face turn. So out he comes and then we get boring body working over the spots and then, you know, Undertaker comes in. And I know that you're going to hate me for saying this, Rory, but I really do like his heel turn because at least now I have an excuse to hate him. You know, hit the, the American... You, you shouldn't need one, Dan, but okay. You, The American badass run was gone as a face. He, he lost all credibility he 
clearly had attitude problems. So at least now, if he gets to pick on, you know, baby faces in the mid card and even people like RVD, at least now there's a potential for some of that rub to be transmitted onto the right people. And I do think he has got some form of an aura back, which, you know, think about eight to nine years ago, The Undertaker was just synonymous. And whenever he came out, you know, it meant something. And I think we did lose that, particularly in 2001 um, in the invasion. I do think now that we've got short-haired biker taker back, I think we can get something, which does mean that we have got a potentially, you know, I wouldn't say star making because it's fucking Maven, but a really good, you know, look at what this, anything can happen in the Royal Rumble moment, which we, you know, do think we need. And it's something that I I'll heartily agree with. And if we want to make The Undertaker as a character continue to look like a complete and utter dickhead bastard, have him beat the living shit out of the poor plucky underdog who was only doing what he was meant to do. I don't really have that much problem with it, apart from, again, the the level of violence that this poor kid was given by someone who should know better. But which, when you actually say it out loud, is actually quite a bad thing. But, you know, it's wrestling. We can't really have nice things all the time. So the Undertaker aside, though, pretty average to poor start to the Royal Rumble. If you're going to give the kid his moment, give the kid his moment. I can just imagine the conversation. I can see Callaway there. I'm not going to call him Undertaker. Fucking Callaway. I can see it there conspiratorially, you know, grinding his fingers and that smirk saying, oh, yeah, I'll put him over. You know, I can fucking see it. I really can. And, oh, just don't do it then. Just have him be thrown out like fodder in five seconds if you're going to do this for all the good it's done. And having a four-minute TV match for the world title against Chris Jericho on Raw the next week is not capitalising on this with Maven at all. Okay, the fact he got a 2.9 count doesn't matter. Taka Michinoku got a 2.9 count against Triple H two years ago. Totally irrelevant. So if they think that's their way to rebuild Maven or build on what they think they've got here, they're completely wrong. And Undertaker has to take his share of the blame, which is 100 fucking percent of it. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Although it does at least, I will say this, it does at least give me something to discuss about the first third of the Rumble, because nothing happened up until The Undertaker came out. Oh God, I, yeah, let's just, just, just move on. Don't try and qualify it. Move on, move on. Scotty is 12. Christian is 13. DDP is 14. And yes, the ellipses that I'm typing here are doing a lot of the talking for me. Oh, hang on, a diamond cutter. That's an actual thing. DDP then falls through the ropes after a Scotty kick and then Christian falls prey to the worm. But that is, of course, his usefulness long since outlived and he gets tossed by DDP straight away. And Chuck is here at the halfway point. Uh, the Godfather is back at number 16. Uh, the WWF are now making it known he has gone legit, clearly kidding themselves that the PTC are even still bothered. And with all of that going on, and you know what I mean by all of that, DDP gets thrown out off camera. And it's still not happening, is it, Paige? OK, you are the European champion now, I see. Now, still not happening, is it, Paige? Albert is 17 and out almost as soon as he arrived at the hands of Godfather, who then gets double clotheslined out by Christian and Chuck. Perry Saturn is here at 18, and this one needs a big name in it and fast. The pacing of this rumble is poor. And number 19 then, no pressure, Austin. He raises hell on everybody, which for all my current qualms of Stone Cold is exactly what this match needed. Christian is out of there, a fling sees to Chuck, and Saturn is gone too. Austin looks at his watch, and I do still get a kick out of that, just about. And then he puts some of these chumps back in, just to send them back out again. 
At 20, it's Val Venus, also straight back to his previous gimmick with zero explanation. So I suppose, everybody, we need to resign ourselves to the fact we will never, ever, ever again see a member of Right to Censor in a Royal Rumble match. Val gets a little bit of shine here. Test arrives at 21 to no reaction, but sadly not no music. I mean, that horror show he comes down to. Oh, fucking hell. We're talking demolition 1990 level music here. Thankfully, we don't need to hear it again tonight as he gets stunned right out of there, just after Val does. So we are back to Austin alone in the ring as we count down to number 22. Gentlemen, the second portion of the match. Things happened in the end. My only two notes for this was Father has a lot of hoes. Well done. Austin clears the ring. Well done. <laughs> oh dear, both legit in their own their own very special ways. Uh, I think you're out at this point, aren't you, Lacey? That is literally my verbatim. I don't blame you one bit. Dan, anything to add at all? I mean, I, I can't really say much more. I mean, how different was it for the first third of the Bumble? You have a bunch of mid-carders just, you know, doing sod all and wasting time until the big boy comes along. And the big boy, in many, in, in some ways, treated all the other wrestlers with even, even more disdain because he actually had, had to go and get them back into the ring to clear them out just to make it a little bit more interesting. I mean... Yeah, I mean, as you said, Austin doing the 1997 thing is still at least a bit funny, but it does feel like Austin is just waiting to move on from the what stuff and give himself a potential bigger feud to work with. And until then, I'm just going to be as back to being 1998, 1999 Stone Cold as I can be to make myself interesting. But it isn't really making the match interesting, if I'm being honest with myself. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd have had Austin out here a little bit earlier. And I, I, I did pop for it, but the fact he threw them back in to eliminate them again, to the point where I actually described them as chumps. Yeah, that's that, there's a pecking order here, and Austin's pecking everybody else, baby. Red Dwarf reference. Right, let's get this. Nothing else to fucking say. Oh, yeah, the Godfather's back. Yeah, hooray. And he's gone legit as if anybody really cares about that. Well done. Triple H is at 22. Well, at least we knew it was coming. He spends an ice age or two coming to the ring, but one thing they get right is the stare down. They tease with tension for exactly the correct amount of time, and it ends by Austin giving him the side eye before they battle. And battle they do. That is great work there from two absolute pros who, when it comes down to brass tacks, just know how to get it done. Speaking of which, Hurricane is out at 23, and in a very fun moment, he catches both Triple H and Austin in a double choke. That's as good as it gets for him, however, as the two favourites just look at each other. And in particular, Austin's mate, seriously face, is absolutely hysterical, and then they both do the inevitable. After another minute of good action between them, Farouk is number 24. <laughs> yeah, all right then. Stunner, clothesline, gone. Side question. After people get hit by finishers in a Royal Rumble, why do they always stand up? I oh, know, I probably shouldn't have asked that. More good brawling until Mr. Perfect is our number 25. He gets a very nice pop as it is, but I would definitely have kept his entry in this match under wraps. He looks pretty good in there. Oh, and I'll tell you what, I love the gum swat while still in danger of being eliminated. Priorities. Kurt Angle is here at number 26, and I should say crowds this month have now started chanting, you suck what, in time to his music. I warned you. I bloody warned you. 
More fine action ensues, as you would expect, but it's still welcome to report it. All four men exchange fists and holes with each other as Big Show is next at 27. Chokeslam for perfect, and then we get a near repeat of the hurricane spot, but Show isn't tossed. Angle tries a German suplex and gets press slammed for his cause, or he would if Triple H didn't save him. Hmm, okay. Helmsley is then chokeslammed as the 28th entrant turns out to be Kane. Everyone bar Show is down as the two biggins go chest to chest. A host fest that ends with Kane body slamming Big Show over the top rope. Whoa. But he doesn't get long to celebrate it, though, as Austin stuns him right into an angle slam. See what I mean? And out. RVD is number 29, as JR calls the luck of the draw. Uh, yeah, uh, about that. He does get a hit angle with a five-star frog splash, but despite a brief flurry, he then takes a pedigree. Need I say more? I'm going to, though. Booker T is our final man in, and his first task is to dispose of Rob Van Dam's lifeless corpse. Lacey, hold your applause. <laughs> Booker gets a spin before being stunned right over the top. Well, that was worth it. So our final four are Triple H, Austin, Angle, and Perfect. And I will stop there before telling you what happens in the final few minutes. Dan, what have we got here? Well, at least we had some nice spots this time. Like, we had the Hurricane, just, you know, perfect. Just, I love the Hurricane as a character. It's just absolutely spot on. The Big Show doing his best to annoy Chris White, yet again, by clearing house. And, then... <laughs> and succeeding, no doubt. And then Kane, like Mr. Royal Rumble himself, coming out again and stealing the show just by body slamming the big show over the top rope, which is the most impressive thing anyone did in this Rumble apart from Maven. So, and then it all goes downhill again because Rob Van Dam is killed by a pedigree, which puts him on the same level as Farouk in this uh, chasing pack. And then Booker T just looks like a chump yet again. We've been we're, we're trying to make this guy a star, guys. We've been trying to make him like Vince McMahon's henchman, and yet he's still being dumped out of the Rumble after Spinner Rooney. Try and make this guy relevant because he got he has got the talent. He was the best like worker in the WCW crop that came over that wasn't already like an elite worker like Lance Storm. He's there, and you're still trying your best to make it not work. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's better than the other stuff because at least we had some spots in there which didn't involve big, super duper uber stars eliminating everybody. Lacey, don't be shy. Hurricane was fun. I like that. You know, I'm all for a bit of funny, you know, someone getting trying to be above the station, and I'm all for that. Mr. Perfect, fuck me, does he look in good shape? And when Angle then was the one that followed him, I was like, I need to see this match. I need to see perfect versus angle. Kane coming in and showing that he's still a monster. Yeah, he didn't have as good a display as last year. He just basically annihilated every fucker. But lifting up and lobbing out of the big show, well played. Fuck you with how they've treated RVD and Booker. Because they've basically just shit on everything in the last six months there. Because they've made them both look like absolute fucking jokes. Trips, one pedigree, fucked him. Austin, one stunner, fuck Booker. And it's just like, they haven't got to win. They don't have to win, but show them have some fucking fight. But it's just clearly, you know, he's not Trips, he's not Austin, so, or Angle, so fuck it. 
Fuck it's also, you. Yeah, it's just terrible. It's really, it's just such a waste of the number 29 and number 30 spots. Even Kane at 28, for that matter, he didn't do anything else after body slamming Big Show over the top rope. He was done straight after that. And if 28, 29, and 30 aren't going to mean anything, then you're not going to hold audiences' attention in the Royal Rumble. So much of the in-ring action is just stuff that happens in the Rumble. It's the entrances that make so much of it. We all know that. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. So if somebody like Kane comes out at 28, RVD at 29, Booker T at 30, you know, these are big names, or at least they should be, and they're all gone within one minute of each other, then that raises and answers its own questions. I said it about RVD last year that there were worrying signs there, how he was treated at No Mercy. You know, nobody agreed with me, but do you hear me now? No, I know we're talking about the number 59 PWI ranked person here, so they should be treating him far better based on that alone. No, all, all joking aside, I thought it was horrendous, but it just told me everything I needed to know. And I think RVD knows it now too if he didn't before and this is the answer this is this when rvd came in right six seven months ago this is what they wanted him to do get a brief pop from things like the five star frog splash then make way for the real stars now he got in the way of that and how and to his eternal credit he stuck with it and to theirs they rode out for a while as well but now they've got extremely bored with it and i don't see it coming back and to a lesser extent that applies to booker as well I'm not sure Booker was ever in the frame to be a main eventer, possibly. And he rubbed shoulders with the right people. But I think he might be all right. I can see him sliding into that upper mid-card role fairly comfortably where he probably belongs. Six months ago, you might have said the same about RVD. But his latter part of 2001 suggested something far, far different. But now, oh boy, how we ever are where we are. But let's get to who our final four are then in this Royal Rumble. It's Triple H, Austin, Angle, and Perfect. Angle proves why he won Worker of the Year last year with everything he does here. I mean, those German suplexes, they are just mint. Austin tries to leverage Hennig out, but then Kurt charges and out goes Stone Cold Steve Austin. The fans were not expecting that. Nor was I. We are down to three, but we'll have to wait to see who wins a little while longer as Austin levels up by leveling everybody with a chair. I don't think we needed that spot. Here's Jim Ross. The bionic redneck is pissed. Depending on what side of the Atlantic you're on, that's quite funny. After a reset, Perfect gives us what he came for, a perfect plex and a neck snap for Angle, but that's his lot as Triple H sends him out. So we are down to our final two. Hunter Hurst Helmsley, why not, and Kurt Angle. Gorgeous belly-to-belly by Angle, but he can't get Hunter over. Keep trying. Script schmipped. Kurt Angle somehow, as does the game. They both make their way back up. They're going to give you everything they've got, as if they haven't already. The win this. Here it goes. Triple H is out. No. His feet. Where does he reach him right with a safe angle? Kurt, turn around. You didn't win yet. Turn around, Kurt. You didn't win. And he thinks he's won. No. Face buster. Angle in trouble. Angle in trouble. Oh, And he does with a back body drop. No, Triple H is still in. Angle does that silly premature celebration thing when Helmsley gets back into the ring, sends Angle to the ropes, then clotheslines him to the outside to win the 2002 Royal Rumble. Triple H is off to face the undisputed champion at WrestleMania, and nobody, but nobody, even pretends that this is any kind of a surprise. 
Dan, your thoughts on the final four and then our Royal Rumble match as a whole. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised for Perfect to stay there. But, you know, again, I mentioned it again, WCW mid-carder for the majority of his final stretch of that run. He comes back two years later. Where is Mr. Perfect? We're awesome. Absence always makes a good face turn. And I wouldn't have him be immediately inserted into the upper echelon of the card, but in Atlanta, Georgia, yeah, give him a little bit of a run and give him a little bit of a rub to have him come back. Nice work. I agree with you on the Austin part of it. I thought it was going to be a Triple H Austin, you know, showdown at the end of the match with then angle getting involved to cost austin the the win because triple h after that return he had and all the promotion they've been putting behind him was always going to be winning this match and for me yeah having him be eliminated by angle and then having him steamroll everyone with a chair just makes him again look like a sore loser rather than someone who was unfairly you know you know, robbed of his fourth Royal Rumble victory, which could set him up to be not in a great spot for WrestleMania season. Because if we are going down the Triple H um, facing Chris Jericho in the main event, there's an obvious sparring partner who we'll talk about later on. But I don't know, it, it doesn't give him the momentum that I was hoping for going into WrestleMania. However, saying that, if you know if as you mentioned Roy we've had nine rumbles now I think that it was probably booked in a way to really elevate the top stars and at the detriment of the mid card and the lower card now we've also had Royal rumbles in the past where there's been no star power whatsoever and it's all been about one man 1996 being Shawn Michaels for example 1998 being you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin about to win his first WWF title. 1995, you could argue there were no stars whatsoever. So I would still say this Rumble match is better than all of those because you star power is still better than no star power. And particularly in the final stretch when we had Angle getting involved with Triple H and Austin, it was some drama there and some anticipation, which you don't have in other Royal Rumble matches. But again, the rumble itself, I think you could have gave more weight to some of the lesser known stars and have them have a little bit of a showdown with Austin and Taker in particular before you get the bigger names. And that's what we got, I think, last year's Royal Rumble, where you had the big name, people like Kane coming in and the hardcore division trying to take him out. And eventually they can't do it. You have The Rock coming out then and having mid-carders ganging up on him and him not looking like an absolute behemoth like the Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin did in this Royal Rumble with then peaking with all of them coming together in the final five and that didn't happen here so obviously it's not going to come to the point of where we were in 1992 1997 or 2001 but I still think it's in the middle tier see perfect being there is a classic throwback to there always being a random that manages to survive near the end Last year you had Billy Gunn. You know, there's always a rando that seems a bit weird on the grand scheme of things that ends up near the end. The one thing this Rumble match really does prove is that the Fed, or at least whoever's booked the Rumble, which I'm going to imagine is obviously Vince, he only gives a fuck about four people. 
He only gives a fuck about Taker, Hunter, Austin, and Angle. Because everyone else is basically left to fucking rot in this. There's no sort of star-making moments for for anyone. You know, yeah, Maven's got a moment that will be spoken about for a while that, you know, he eliminated the Undertaker. But look what happened to him. He got fucking murdered. And, you know, no one, no one puts out one of the big stars other than an already big star. Um, I've just, it's a boring rumble. Um, it reminds me of 93, that one being another boring rumble. Um, 88, the first rumble was pretty shit. Yeah, oh, 95 was another one that was boring. You know, it's it's down there as as the rumble match as a whole as low end and I can pretty much say right now I won't be watching this one again unlike last year's you know I've watched last year's one a couple of times again um, and obviously ninety two being the the gold standard of rumble match but yeah bit of shit <laughs> waiting for that let you have your moment there. Uh... <laughs> wasn't going to cut you off before that this rumble before it even began threatened to suffer from the same problems that the royal rumbles of 1991 1996 1998 and probably 2000 had as well in that whether you are dave Meltzer, or to paraphrase homer simpson as i do so often the bunch of the markiest marks who ever marked you know full well who was winning this goddamn match okay and in all of those rumbles the person who was so obviously winning the chopping thing came in way too late now in 1998 with austin coming back from injury he had a bit of an out and you could probably say the same about triple h here as well so going into this match i would have liked the wwf to have thought a little bit more about it you go you know what everybody knows triple h is winning but if he can, we're going to put him in a bit earlier than the final 10, having round about 13, 14. He can interact with more people, can more eliminations be teased. You can tell another couple of stories. You could possibly create another couple of branching feuds to see you up until WrestleMania if you want. Just all of that to take the possibility of him winning from 100% down to 99.9999999999% in every fan's mind. However, they didn't do that. And when we got to number 20 and number 21 and triple h hadn't emerged we all knew what was happening and how it was going to happen yes everybody i wanted to see more triple h on my tv screen <laughs> let's we'll wrap up the final section i don't think perfect needed to be in the final four to be honest if they thought anything really of either booker t or rvd it should have been at least one of them have perfect do his signature spots which all anybody wanted to see anyway the gum swat, the neck snap, and the perfect plex. Have him do that to somebody like Christian or something 25, 30 minutes earlier, and then get tossed. You don't need to tease him winning the bloody thing. That's that's over-egging and pressing the nostalgia button a little bit too hard, which we do again a little later, actually, which we'll talk about in our final section. So otherwise, I thought it was a fairly well-booked rumble, but that's because they didn't really set themselves especially high tasks. Now, have the Maven Undertaker thing, 16 goobers until austin comes out then triple h is there at 22 angle at 26 and they'll take care of themselves 
which they did, as you would expect them to. And the action between those three was as good as you would expect it to. So they certainly didn't let anybody down on that score. But this was a rumble which they didn't really need to try to put together, much like the rumbles I've mentioned. Everybody knew what was going to happen. And rather than teasing any doubt, they just went with that. And it's okay. It's fine. Triple H winning is the right outcome. I'm not one of these people who thinks predictability in wrestling or in any form of scripted entertainment is necessarily bad. Something's predictable because it's the logical end of a story sometimes. Now, predictable does not always equal boring. It really doesn't. When that involves Triple H is another matter, but I'm going to let that one slide for now. But from a story perspective, they should have done more to make it suggest that he wouldn't, even though we all knew he would. There were a lot of dead portions from the crowd in this rumble as well. As I said, Austin should have come in earlier if he was basically there to clean house. It suggests to me they don't have much faith at all in their mid and low card. And given the crowd's lack of response to them, even from their entrances, let alone what we did in the ring, suggests they're probably right to think that. And there, other than the hurricane stuff, which was undoubtedly fun, but largely inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, there's not a whole lot you here you can hang your hat on. Now, compared to 2001, which had five or six through-line stories that were both independent and they were connected to each other. 2001, one of the very best rumbles ever, as you guys elucidated so well this time last year. I don't think this is one of the worst rumbles of all time, because mainly because as Dan says, the star power here really was the star power. But of course, conversely, as Chris says, that's because we all know who the stars are. So they bloody better bring the star power. So you can easily look at it from both sides way way down on last year's rumble but probably on a par with 2000s perhaps you know the tacker spot you could probably rank alongside the hurricane one with not a whole lot house happening from the lower mid carders and that's pretty much it up the rumble is like pizza and other things even when it's bad it's still pretty good and with that, let's wrap up the Royal Rumble 2002 pay-per-view. Chris Lacey, sum up your thoughts and give us a score rating out of 10. This is not the start of the year that I was hoping for. Um, a dull rumble, a fairly dull undercard, and so much so it got three naps. I, you know, I, I didn't mention when the other two full times I fell asleep were. It was actually during the rumble itself. Oh... First time on the night because I woke up at the end of the title match and fell asleep just after the the Maven bit, so when the ring was filling up before Austin came back out. And the second time was when I rewatched it the next night and still fell asleep during the Rumble because it was that fucking dull. Says everything. Three sleeps out of three. Where's that on the out of ten scale? Not the toast one, okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a you get oh, no 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 you translate it for me, Lacey. Where's that in normal numbers? Just for posterity, you know. Three four. out of ten, four out of ten. Three, three and a half. Oh, the difference. Dan, I better come to you now. There was nothing bad on this show for starters. There's a couple of mayor matches in the undercard, and then the women's match and the tag team match. A confusing match with Vince and Flair. Um, but I can't call it bad. Um, the problem is there's nothing exceptional of, on this show. Like I can have a match, a, a show that has got a, quite a lot of bad in it, but if you've got one brilliant thing that you have to go out your way to see, 
then I'm willing to give it even a seven or an eight out of ten. And there's nothing on that large. And I also know that I'm probably having rose tinted glasses because there's a character on the show which is basically doing everything that I want in a character. But that is not what most people want in objective good wrestling. So I'm downgrading a little bit. And if I compare it to SummerSlam 2001, for example, which is like what I was comparing it to, there's nothing on that on this show which comes close to Rock Austin or RVD Jeff Hardy or even someone like, you know, compare the Edge match. Lance Dom got a better match out of Edge than William Regal did. So I'm going to give it a six and a half. Mm, okay, I I thought you were going to go a touch higher than that, but yeah, I'm yeah, okay. I, th- I do, even though I thought you were possibly touching a seven, I think that would have been rather excessive. I should say this show has had some glowing reviews all over the. You know, I'd like to think we'd be in the voices of reason here. I saw no Wade Keller gave the Rumble match four and a quarter, but then he gave Brett Austin at WrestleMania 13 four and a quarter. So there you go. And people calling this one of the best Rumble events of all time. And you know, what are people watching here? No, just stick with us, everybody. Stick with us. We bring the truth. Either that, or I want to know what they're smoking, and I want some. <laughs> Hope it doesn't put you to sleep, Lacey. Five and a half out of ten for me for Rumble 2002, which is not good enough. Let's say that I'm not giving the WWF a pass on this one. I don't think they should be hitting five and a half shows anymore. I think with the talent they have got and the capabilities they should employ for using them, then I would say that six and a half should really be their baseline and they drop below that. But there was nothing bad on this show. A lot of it was questionable. I was scratching my head through so much of it. The wrong choices were made at certain times and it was all a bit wonky and it just didn't quite have the lick of paint or the turn of the screw or the squidge of WD-40, the matches needed to really take them to that next level. I don't think anybody really was in the mood to work at the higher level, which is probably a problem they might want to look at going forward and nip that in the bud as quickly as possible. But like I said at the top, this was the Royal Rumble show. It's big four. People are always going to watch it. People are always going to be entertained by it. And they got to the outcome after two hours and 40 minutes of Triple H posing on the buckles. That's what this Rumble show existed for. That's what we got. Your mileage may vary, and indeed my own mileage does vary. But from the rather low bar, then they've acquitted themselves. Raw Rumble 2002, five and a half out of ten. The WWF is going to die. I know that. The WWF has cancer because of Ric Flair. Flair's going to kill it. And the kind of cancer Flair gave the WWF is the slow eating kind of cancer. It's not quick. I'm not gonna let Ric Flair kill what I created. Me. The WWF is mine. It's mine. I created it. I'm not gonna let Ric Flair kill what I created. 
because I'm going to kill what I created. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill my creation. I'm going to inject the WWF with a lethal dose of poison. If anybody's going to kill my creation, I'm going to do it. Me. And the NW. Oh. So one more thing to discuss before we close out for the month, and it's a rather big one, I'm afraid. So what you heard there was Vince McMahon on the January 24th edition of SmackDown saying that he was going to do something that even he would regret. <laughs> now, boy, does that cover quite the field. And kill what he created. You know, just two months after he fought with every last sinew to save the company. But we're probably supposed to forget about all of that now, and I'm quite happy to do so. Anyway, he wants to destroy the WWF from within, because of course he does. And who is going to help him do that? The lethal dose of poison he is going to inject into his creation. The NWO. Final week of television in January, he gave an ultimatum to Mr. Ric Flair, saying that he needed to sign over his 50% of the company so Vince McMahon was in full control again, or the NWO would do it all for him. Ric Flair then presented a video package which detailed the entire history of the WWF to the tune of Lonely Road of Faith, much to Lacey's pleasure, no doubt. Yeah, that was Ric Flair introducing a video package on the WWS history. You know, the Ric Flair who worked there for about 18 months worth of his career. But anyway, a great video package it was. Do seek it out. It went all the way back to the early 60s and even dropped in some new generation footage. So it just shows to me the Federation becoming a little bit more comfortable with their past now that they're the only game in town. History winners written. Put these words in the right order. But Ric Flair was about to sign the contract on the SmackDown on the 31st of January to give it all to Vince. But of course, Austin, as he so often does these days, you know, just basically got Flair to shove the contract really and they beat Vince up a bit. So the NWO will be coming in. And when I say the NWO, I mean the NWO. Let me give you some details while I still can. Kevin Nash was the first person to sign signing for a rumoured $750,000 per year. It is highly likely he will actually bring home a lot more than that. The contract stipulates he will work 12 dates a month, and he is highly likely to be at home for far longer than that. Sorry, I couldn't resist. So apparently $750,000 a year for 12 days a month. <laughs> yeah. Scott Hall is there too, who is pretty much just along for the ride, to the point where he might have the same contract as Kevin Nash. Those details might have been released, but uh, not many of our sources have actually taken too much effort to try to locate them, because where Kevin Nash goes, Scott Hall follows in a not-so-straight line. But the real story, which broke on the 2nd of February, which is why we're recording this one a little bit late, is that Hulk Hogan will indeed be joining them. Now, his contract details, we don't know at this point, simply because I only found out that Hogan was officially signed about 30 minutes before we went up recording here. My copy of the torch hit the doormat just in time. Hogan's contract is likely to be twice as lucrative as Kevin Nash's. Oh, it started. It started already, but with a similar amount of working dates. 
It is not known at this point what their storyline involvement will be, but it is a pretty safe bet that poor old Chris White will have to discuss their debut at the No Way Out pay-per-view in a few weeks' time. Think about it. But who else would I have? Who else would I want to discuss the return of Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Hulk Hogan to the WWF than Chris Lacey and Dan Welling? Dan, over to you, cute bold bastard. <laughs> you know, there is such a thing as expectation of a concept versus a reality, right? Everyone's going insane over this. Oh my God, the NWO. I think most people who wanted you know, the invasion to be better than what it was, wanted some form of the NWO in, you know, to arrive and, and cause the same level of havoc as the advanced guard of WCW led by Ric Flair as the as the true owner of WCW rather than Shane McMahon. Have you have you guys any seen any of these guys output in the last two years? They are fucking shit. Yeah. Nash and Hogan in particular have been Leaf, literally lethal doses of poison to WCW <laughs> and when they Robert. do wrestle it's garbage I fucking watched Hulk Hogan versus Kevin Nash in the main event of a WCW pay-per-view when they were the ones running the fucking show of all the times for them to actually go and put in some effort that was the time and did they fuck Oh, you wonder why I pick the guests I do each month, ladies and gents. Now, now, obviously, I know that they're hopefully going to be facing wrestlers of the calibre of Rock, Austin, Triple H, and maybe, I was going to say Rob Van Dam, but probably not based on what happened at the Royal Rumble. But, you know, maybe even a Chris Benoit when he's back, and, you know, and not people like Billy Kidman, who's been, you know, overpushed and, and a, you know, bland, boring Jeff Jarrett. But I don't think it's me being cynical and having blind hatred of the men, but I don't think it's, you know, reasonable for me to say that an angle, you need to have some form of good payoff in the ring for me to, to, to be a full, complete, good storyline. Like, I will take Undertaker versus Kane as an example of that, where the storyline and the angle was fucking brilliant. And yet we don't really talk about it in glowing terms like we do with Hogan Savage and and even something like, you know, Flair Vader, because the matches were a bit, eh, you know, in comparison to those masterpieces that we got. Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash in particular and Scott Hall, by all accounts, probably is in the same ballpark with what he's happening with him in his personal life cannot deliver deliver good matches if their attitude to what they were doing in 1999-2000 has changed at all. So I'm assuming that we're going to get Megastar versus Megastar WrestleMania season with with Flair and, and McMahon concluding their feud. I don't have any hope for it because I've got four years worth of evidence to tell you these guys can't give a shit even when they're up against some of the biggest names in the industry. So if they're willing to come in with a fresh attitude and, and, and wrestle and give promos and interact with the talent that they did in, say, 1996 and 1995, like Kevin Nash, and 1990 and 1999, like Hulk Hogan, I'm all for it. I want to believe you. I just can't because I've got a bucket load of evidence to say that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, that's also, sorry, uh, before we move on i want Go to on. say vince mcmahon oh, and that promo 
once again, like fucking exceptional. Slightly overacting at points because it's fucking Vince McMahon. But when you've got the evil maniacal Vince McMahon, he can make this work. He can turn chicken shit into chicken salad as we got got shown with the higher power. So <laughs> I'm putting a lot of fucking hope in Vince McMahon for this to make this work because he can make this angle work. I don't know if the wrestlers will be able to make the matches work. We're going to need him to. And just one thing as well. I'm very glad that when they shot Vince McMahon talking into a mirror on that SmackDown, they made sure to keep it on the mirror when he turned his chair around and revealed the letters. Because, of course, somebody would have actually painted the letters O-W-N on the back of the chair. And boy, did that bring back some memories. Maybe we should be thankful for what we've got after all. However, I'm not so sure, Lacey, you're going to agree. Because I think it's going to all come crashing down. And boy, does it hurt inside. Oh, so... Right, I'm, I'm putting it out now. Which happens first? Nash fucking injures himself and is out <laughs> for the year. Or Hall gets pissed up and makes a fool of himself and gets sacked. I'm, I'm thinking the odds on that. I'm going to go Nash. Just. I can see them. How? I can see them happening at but, the same time. Very possibly in the same place as well, but go on. But it's, <laughs> it's the news. I... Oh. I'm I'm intrigued with I want to see how they do it. Um, am I expecting good things? Not really. But then you know we all like to stare at car crash every so often. Um, do we need Cunt Hogan in the year of our Lord 2002? No. Nash, when motivated, can add something to the product. Would I want him in ring adding that thing to the product? Who knows? You know, occasionally, you know, once in a while, then maybe. Scott Hall, unless, you know, he has gone through multiple stints of rehab, is a fucking liability. And as I said, I don't know which one happens first. He gets sacked for being fucking pissed and drugged up, or Nash breaks himself because he's fucking made of glass um i'd be intrigued as i said i'm intrigued to see what they do with it i'm intrigued to see whether if we get you know an extended version or if it is just going to be the the three originals um because you've got show that's there he could be a member you've got x park that you know they could bring him back from his hiatus or whatever it is he did when he just disappeared off the tv for a bit so you've got people that can then actually go in the ring and be NWO in the ring. But I just I can't say I'm massively inhabited to see what happens in the ring. But yeah, it should be fun to at least watch it. I think it's fair to say it's not going to be boring. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be entertaining at least. You, you are going to need your slogan there, Lacey, and boy, are you going to need... You might, you might well be regretting it by the time all this is done. <laughs> it might well need some amending. Well, it's, be, it's, better to be, it's better to be boring than be the NWO. Yeah, OK. That's got well, there, might be a new, there might be a new third scale on there. You know, you've got bad, boring NWO. <laughs> we can all see it, can't we? Everybody should be careful what they wish. Very first knock-ins of the purchase of WCW at the end of 2000. I said so on the show then with Eric. I said, everybody wants his dream matches in WWF. Do you really want Kevin Nash there? Do you really want Hulk Hogan there? And everybody said they did. And now here we are. 
here we fucking are. No. We dodged a bullet during the invasion angle because of those glorious AOL Time Warner contracts. And boy, what gold dust they look like now, for goodness, not, not that gold dust. <laughs> but Kevin Nash's expired, as we said last month, on the 1st of January 2002. And he was straight on the blower to Vince McMahon. He's been negotiating. Or the thought of Kevin Nash actually negotiating does seem a bit of a misnomer to me. You know, guaranteed money, baby. Doesn't seem much of an stance, but hey, it works for him. There you go. And a richer man than I will ever will be. I'll do far more work than he probably does. But anyway, I don't see how this can possibly end well. On camera and off camera. On camera, I can see their current storylines being completely nixed for the sake of this one. And we have seen very similar, whether we like it or not. Well, we didn't for the invasion six months ago, just this time. They're going to be led by Vince McMahon. I think the general MO is going to be the same. And it didn't work the first time. It sure as hell not going to work the second time. And of course, backstage. There have already been rumors and whispers and a few quotes from wrestlers who understandably at this point wish to remain anonymous, who are frankly terrified of that bunch coming in. Nash and Hogan, especially. Hall is seen as a bit kind and a bit cuddly. I'm you know, well, we know Bob Bamba certainly thinks that. I'm not sure that view of, of, of Hall is entirely helpful. And I think he gets away with things a bit because of it. But he is seen as the least of the problems. I'm not sure that's true, but time will tell. But Nash and Hogan, oh boy, oh boy, is everybody ever getting it right with them? And I shudder to think what their demands have been for on screen and off screen. Cannot go well. I'm not being a prophet of doom. It cannot go well. I don't care whether NWA heels. I don't care whether they're faces. There is nothing they can do to make me excited about this. Nothing at all. And yes, it is going to be quite a car crash. But yes, car crash is very entertaining when you're on the other side of them. But yeah, go on, Lacey. Devil's advocate on that, though. Have we not mentioned during the Rumble review that there are fuck all stars? Well, there's four stars. Name me three bigger stars that are free agents right now that they could bring in. But this isn't going to help other people become stars, is it? Oh, no. No. That That is the, the downside on that. There are things there, but we've, we've just said during the Rumble that, you know, you had a Taker, Angle, DeHart, Trips, and Austin be your only stars in a 30-man Rumble. You know, it, Devil's Advocate, as I said there, you know, is is having a few more bigger names turn up. Is it is it, you know, all that bad? Probably will be, and I'm not, you know, trying to make out this is going to be some sort of amazing new idea. But if you are, I don't know, a lapsed wrestling fan that hasn't watched for a year or two since you know the since the downfall of WCW and you flick on Raw on a Monday night is your channel skipping and you see the NWO are you gonna stop and watch? People will. But people definitely will. And I do think we're in the minority on this. And I've had lots of kickbacks and emails and what have you about the way we have responded, let's say responded to Hulk Hogan over the nine years of this podcast. The boy has his fans out there, to put it very mildly, and I've the sharp end of their tongue on more than one occasion, but 
I'm not going to be swayed. I'm not going to be one round on this. I don't care what iteration of Hogan we get, whether it's NWO 96 Hogan, whether it's do-rag sword-waving Hogan, clad in his black gloves, or even, God forbid, a return to the red and the yellow. Not what we want in 2002. Not what we want in 2002 WWF. Is it really what Vince McMahon wants in 2002 WWF? I think that's the real question. But by the looks of it, we, or I should say other people, are going to have many, many months in which to answer it. And that brings us out of the time machine back to January 2022. First thing I want to do is thank my guest today, Chris Lacey. You stayed awake for the two hours of the recording, I think. Of course I have. You know, I, I stayed. Yeah, I wasn't bored to death rewatching the Rumble. Uh, that is that's a plus. That's definitely a plus. Uh, Dan Welling, you made it too. Probably a little easier. No problem at all. I want to apologise in advance. I think that i was queued up for a what but because of how much you two hate it i decided to renee on that you know uh, suggestion and next time can i please go on to a show where i don't have like a completely contrasting opinion of a show with one of our guests i feel like i'm a comp- complete outlier sometimes the show is all about complete outliers I mean, the pro wrestling debate is about being complete outliers dan power of positivity is strong in this one i'm just trying to think of some down the line no yeah i I hate to say this dan i think there could be no actually no and i'll get to this in a second i think there's one where you might just might just have your wish because everybody the show you have just heard is the last show i will be on for a few months (laughs) had you going there sorry so um i am entering the world of fatherhood uh, we are expecting our first child in this house in a few months time a little girl not daddy's little girl or at least i hope not <laughs> i'll do everything i can to assuage that uh will be joining us uh in late april early may and all of us are all tremendously excited about it and it's just really quite wonderful news i wanted to share it all with you but uh being a first-time parent and the fuckload of things we have to do i need to sort of saying fuckload out loud us in a few months time as well that we need to do around the house means i will be taking a bit of a step back from the podcast you will be in very very capable hands for the next few months including my esteemed guests here will be on hosting duty at certain times dan you've got the april show for hosting that might well be the one where you get people to agree with you on considering the two main events of that one that you have to enjoy and endure. Why, why did I nominate myself for that show? You picked it very, very, I'll do that. I'll do April 2002. And then I realised uh, what was on it. <laughs> Always well, do your research. You, uh, Lisa, you've, you've got uh, June as well, which will have a lot of, a, a lot of big happenings on that one. Yes. Um, That's a very busy The King one. of the Ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the King of the Ring pay-per-view as well. <laughs> So all, all the guests, they'll be on. Chris White will be there hosting. Eric Lamster will be hosting. And of course, you'll get to hear all the usual guests. The current plan is for me to be making a tentative, and I do mean tentative, because who knows how these things are going to shake down, turn as a guest in August. However, you haven't quite heard the last of me yet until that time. I will be hosting a very special WrestleMania quiz, which we will, we will be recording in March and should be putting out in early April. So do stay tuned for that. Other things elsewhere, I have put Senior Video, my show on the Places to be Nation Wrestling Network that you have been on a few times, Mr. Lacey. I've pressed the pause button on that one for a while as well. 
but hopefully that one will be coming back in the latter half of 2022 as well. You, you, you mean what you really mean is you got that tape stuck in there from that dodgy German to, site that I told you about. Still recording, Lacey. And you will still hear me for a few more months on the Special Relations Show with Ben Locke and Callum McDougall because it's very, very easy to sit down and record a show about random bollocks that needs no preparation for a couple of months. Uh, new shows in February and March, and then we're doing some pre-records over the next couple of weeks as well. I just want to say thank you to everybody for all the lovely words you've had. Uh, so much appreciated in this house. And who knows, maybe you'll get to hear from the little one during a recording in a few months' time. But so I don't want to make this all about me. I'm going to make, it, make this about the guys as well. Uh, Lacey, you've got some other things in the pipeline too? Yes. Yeah, so um, the comic stash videos that I do with my good buddy Seddon um, go up every Sunday, except this week. The uh, video corrupted when they were trying to download it. So missing this week, but uh, yeah, every week um, on Sunday, just me and my mate yakking bollocks about comic books and comic book related things. And every other Friday, I'm on the Renaissance Men podcast, which is just for lads talking bollocks about geeky shit with lots of swearing and bad jokes, as you'd expect from me. It's great. Um, find them on YouTube easy enough uh, search for Renaissance Men and Lacey and Seven's Comic Stash again on YouTube um, for geekiness. Dan, anything else you want to plug before we before we sign off? Well, as the most inactive of all of our podcast paternity, most likely not. But watch this space. Now, now, I've, now I have actually moved house. There may I have a little bit more free time than I have done in the last two years. So there is always a possibility for something. Mostly I'm going to be focusing on trying to make sure I'm as absolutely top notch audacity editor as you two good sirs before the, the uh, year is ready and finished. April will be the first. I, I, it, it takes a bit of time. You know, if you listen to the first shows I edited in the mid 98, they're, they're, they're a little bit rough and I didn't quite get the drop ins right. But I'd like to think I'm a bit of a dab hand at it now. But you do get there. You do get there. And, you know, each of us having our own style of editing sort of means that, you know, you know who's done which show. You, you definitely do. And I should say on that score, do check out the Spotify playlist as well. Very easily found a search wrestling 20 years ago podcast on Spotify. You'll find all the shows on there, most importantly, but you will find our playlist of every show you can find on Spotify that we have played a little bit of over the last eight and a half years, including the shows I, of the music I have played underneath our discussions that the guys don't know about yet. But I want to say thank you once more to Chris Lacey and Dan Welling for joining me today. Thank you to all of our guests, all of our presenters, all of you for listening. I will be back in a few months' time. But for now, I have been Rory McNamara. And that really needs a name. So, um, how do we play? Right, there are 28 squares representing the top 40. The winner is the first person to get to number one. You can start. Roll the dice. Okay. Four. Right. One, two, three, four. Pick a card. Oh. <laughs> you play the gay clubs. Throw again. You're good at this, aren't you? Uh, what do we get? A five. One, two, three, four, uh, five. Um, Make a video where you are covered in oil and squirty cream. Miss a turn. <laughs> My goal. Get a six, get a six, get a six. Uh, uh, six! Which one am I? Get about... Right. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
Robbie Williams ruins it and leaves and ruins it. Career over, end of game! Everybody likes the nibbles.